Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Geeky Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. 
It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. I even think, you know, my libertarian friends cringe at this idea, but we should open up a maybe a more robust discussion around whether two-year mandatory military service might do some good. And if people don't like the military, then create a civilian service equivalent for them. Mm-hmm. Because the countries that have them include Israel, Singapore, Switzerland, Sweden. They have better outcomes for their young adults, adults in their 20s, yeah. than we do. Less crime, less addiction. In the book, I wrote about a kid who who decided he wasn't going to college right away. And, and he ended up working for a surf magazine, an online magazine, and it paid nothing. And he lived in his car. And he decided then to go to Puerto Rico and he was a dishwasher, did all of these kinds of things. And then when he came back, he was ready for school. He could now see the value of an education. He owned it. He didn't feel like he owned it before. Nah. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Rich, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. I'm just delighted to be with you today, Srini. Oh, it is my pleasure to have you here. I have been really, really excited about this conversation uh, ever since I picked up your book, Late Bloomers, The Power of Patience in a World Obsessed with Early Achievement, because uh, my cousin sent me the book. And uh, as I was telling you before we hit record here, I don't think I've ever highlighted and underlined so much of a book. I felt like I was reading my life story. And I, in my mind, I thought this is the most important book of 2019. Every single person who is a parent should read it. Every person who is a kid should read it. Every person who feels like they're just a fuck up who's you know not where they're at, where they want to be with their life should read this book. It was that to me, it was that like special. Uh, But before we get into the rafters, (laughs) (laughs) so before we get into all of that, uh, I want to start with what I think is a very relevant question, particularly given the nature of this book. Um, And that is what is one of the most important things that one or both of your parents taught you about life or work that shaped and influenced who you've become and what you've ended up doing with your life? My father was a high school athletic director. Actually, when I was young, he was a physical education teacher, and he used to come around to grade schools around town, Bismarck, North Dakota, and he would teach the class how to do jumping jacks and things like that. I was kind of embarrassed. We were pretty poor. I was one of those kids that that, um, the only one not to have uh, a set of encyclopedias in our class. I realized that's a first world problem. But then he got ambition, and he applied for and won the job as public school system athletic director. And all of a sudden, he had this great job in town. Everybody recognized him. He hosted the state basketball tournaments and wrestling tournaments. He did the public address. And he gave me the lesson that you can go out and reinvent yourself, because he was one of those high school jocks went off to college, came back, played softball with the boys, hung out at the bar with the boys, 
I really think if uh, my mom is still alive, he's passed, but I think if you had asked my mom under truth serum, she might have said that she'd made a mistake marrying him because he was sort of every small town cliche of the of the athlete who comes back and hangs out in sports bars. But he got ambition somewhere in his 30s, and he created a job where he was in charge. He got up every day and decided what what to do, the tournaments to go bid for, the preparing for to do public address at football games, basketball tournaments, etc. And so I got to watch him really joyfully have a life that he'd created for himself. And I guess that was the chief lesson of my childhood, even though, as I recount in the book, I had a pretty average high school career, junior college career, college career, and so forth. But the lesson of my dad going out and doing that stuck with me forever. Yeah. What do you think triggered that uh, at age 30 in particular? I mean, you have 10 years where, like you said, he kind of was the, the you know, stereotype of what we would think of the you know, high school superstar comes out and hangs his you know, sports bars. What changed? Well, I suppose in his own way, he was a late bloomer, too. He somehow found that intersection of his deepest passions, his native gifts, and a sense of a sense of purpose. Not only did he, um, you know, as athletic director, he hired and fired coaches. He hired really good coaches. He hired very unorthodox coaches sometimes. And he led the whole state of North Dakota in adopting Title IX. So the girls' sports got adequate funding, and and my hometown today has gone from one public high school to three public high schools, and they all dominate high school sports today. So it could have been that. It could have been that he, with more kids coming along, suddenly he woke up and knew that he had obligations that he was not ready to fulfill. I wish I'd had that conversation with him, frankly. But I look back and my brother feels the same way. My my brother is a lot younger. My brother only knew my dad as a high school athletic director. But my brother today is the athletic director at Rice University in Houston. Yeah. So I wonder, particularly with siblings who get to see their parents at different stages in their careers, because I think, you know, you and I have that in common. I mean, my dad is a professor, but my sister basically grew up pretty much, you know, in the period after my dad had gotten tenure at UC Riverside, he was making more money. And I grew up watching my parents struggle. So I wonder, you know, how those influences have shaped you and your brother differently in terms of, you know, the early parts of your career and the early parts of your life and the, and the choices that you guys ended up making. Well, my younger brother, um, our household was more affluent when he came along and he's 20 years younger than I am. But uh, I remember one of the things that I noted in the book is that my dad had a kind of status anxiety and he was nervous around really successful business people. He was the king of sports in Bismarck, but he was not a great business person. He was locked into the public school system salary. And I'll never, you know, I, I always remember that. It was his body language. He never said anything negative about the people, let's say, who owned car dealerships or the doctors and lawyers in town or the people who belong to the local country club. In the local country club, in terms of country clubs today that you see in, you know, the San Francisco Bay Area or New York or any larger city was 
nothing to write home about, but it was a barrier and it was something where he was on the outside and not the inside. And I never really took that fully into account. I did have a chapter in Late Bloomers on culture, and I did relate that nearly everybody grows up in a family, that even a loving family, they're imperfect. Now, that's sure a lot better than the child who grows up in abject poverty with alcoholic parents or a dad that never shows up or a dad that ran off and and all of those kinds of things. So I don't claim in any sense to to equivalence in that manner. But I do remember that. And I and I do remember that. And I suppose I took that some of that on myself. That I remember when I was uh, out here in California in my mid twenties, even even after I began to bloom in my late twenties, when I felt my brain coming together, I still I knew that I had to start dressing professionally, and and I went into Nordstrom's, and I went into Nordstrom's with great trepidation. I thought for sure that they would throw me out; that somehow they had a radar system that would detect me as is kind of the poorer kid who came from North Dakota, poor by Northern California standards. And <laughs> I still remember that today that I was had great fear of walking into Nordstrom's. Mm-hmm. So another thing I wonder about, I mean, 20 years is a huge gap between you and a sibling. And you know, I've always wondered about the role that age gap plays in the bond between two siblings. Cause I have, you know, a former business partner who's a twin and he says he talks to his sister every day. Uh, my sister and I are five years apart and it's only really in the last couple of years that we became a lot closer. She just got married. So obviously you spent a lot of time with family during that, particularly cause it's an Indian wedding. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I always joke that, you know, I think the day my sister and I started bonding was when I knew she started doing things my parents would disapprove of. And I came home from college and she says, hey, can you buy us alcohol for a party? <clears throat> so I really wonder, you know, with a 20 year gap, like what is the dynamic like and how does that affect the relationship and the bond that you have with a sibling? Oh, I love my brother, Joe. I'm speaking to a Shell Oil conference next week in Houston and and uh, I'm taking the time to spend a few days with Joe and his wife and, and their three boys. And Joe and I see the world the same. We laugh at the same things. But he had a different experience. He wouldn't consider himself a late bloomer. He was a star in track and field. He won the state half mile when he was a junior. He got into Stanford not, not on a fluke as I had done 20 years before, but legitimately because he was a great student. He was a great athlete. I don't think he ever had the self-confidence issues that I had. I, I, I just had a complete absence of self-confidence when I was in high school and for some time after. And I don't believe he had that at all. His route to becoming the athletic director at Rice was that he was in the Stanford Athletic Department before that, and he was the chief fundraiser. So he had to meet with super rich people and persuade them to give millions of dollars to the sports program. The idea of doing that then, when I was his age, would have been so foreign. I would still find it very, very difficult to ask people to give that amount of money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, speaking of Stanford, uh, I went to that other school across the bay. Uh, so 
both of us basically come from what, you know, for the most part are considered elite institutions. I remember we, we had William Dershowitz here who wrote this book called The Miseducation of the American Elite. And he said, he's like, you went to probably arguably the best public school in the entire country, if not the world, and you went to Stanford. So, you know, there's no way I think we could get out of this conversation without talking about two things. One is the college admission scandal, which I want to cover second. But uh, you know, from your perspective, particularly having written about this book, watching the rising cost of tuition and the fact that it seems more and more that college is not leading to its intended outcome for a lot of people, I wonder how you would go about rethinking our current education system based on you know the viewpoint from this book. Well, let me tell you how I got into Stanford because it was quite a fluke, and then I'll I'll go on and and answer the your uh, other two questions. So in high school in Bismarck, North Dakota, the, the one public high school at the time, I was I barely made the honor roll. The honor roll was the top 20% of students. And I think I finished something like in the 19th percent, just barely made it with Bs and then the occasional B pluses. I just wasn't engaged at all. Then I went to my local junior college three blocks away. I improved from Bs to B pluses. I improved from an above average runner to a little bit better than an above average runner. And then in a combination of factors that would never repeat again for anybody that came after me, I got into Stanford and I applied to Stanford because I knew I wasn't blooming in North Dakota. And somehow I knew that I had to get to one coast or the other. And I felt the West Coast was speaking to me. And so I applied to Stanford and got in. How, how did I get in as a junior college transfer with B-plus grades? Well, Stanford at the time, we're talking the 1970s, was a regionally excellent university, not what it is today. They had a 25% admissions rate, probably even a higher rate for junior college transfers, because at the time they took many of them, probably in honor of California's you know, rich community college system. The affirmative action of the day was if you were from a small state like North Dakota, you had an edge. And then, unbeknownst to me at the time, the track coach at Stanford, or the, the coach of the distance runners and the head cross country coach, saw my application and seen that I had run in the junior college indoor nationals, which wasn't that hard to qualify for. And I'm sure he walked over to the admissions department and he said, look, if this guy isn't totally bad, you know, could you let him in? Because I've, I need to fill out the back end of my roster. And, and he looks like he could be decent and, and maybe, maybe get better. And, and so for all those reasons, I got into Stanford. But of course, I was not qualified at all. I was coming in as a junior. I quickly figured out how to take the easiest classes because after the first quarter, when I tried to take legitimate classes like constitutional law, I was just blown out of the water. So I ended up taking classes like sleep and dreams, human sex, uh, film aesthetics, got out of Stanford with a B average, um, no, uh, uh, no prospects of grad school. My roommates were going off to do extraordinary things. One was finishing up Stanford Law School, and he would have a great career one of Silicon Valley's law firm powerhouses. Another one went off to get his master's in chemical engineering at Penn 
and he worked on the heat tiles of what everyone would know later was the space shuttle program, though we couldn't talk about it at the time. And another one went off to Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena to pursue joint degrees in divinity and psychology. And he's had a great career as a practicing clinical psychologist. And while they were doing those things, at age 25, I could hold a job no greater than dishwasher, temp typist, and security guard. One night when I was a security guard at a trucking firm outside of San Jose, I was making my rounds in my mall cop uniform and my flashlight, and I heard a dog barking across the way. I swung my flashlight around, and there I saw my counterpart, a Rottweiler. And it occurred to me that at age 25, my professional peer was a dog. A few months after that, Steve Jobs, also 25, would take Apple public. And then I became really aware of of my station in life versus the station in life of people who were achieving. Well, about a year after that, on a temp typist gig, I was working at the Electric Power Research Institute, and I was running with some of the scientists and engineers at noon, and one of them asked me, why are you stuck in the temp typing pool, Rich? And I just, at that point, I just kind of fessed up, and thank God I did. I said, I don't know. I just feel stuck. I don't seem to get this adult life thing. Well, he said, would you like to see if you could do some technical editing and technical writing? And I said, I would love to try. And so I wound up in the nuclear power division of the Electric Power Research Institute, and I'll tell you, I just loved it. The other thing this job did was it opened up the side of my brain that had never been opened up before, and that was the way scientists and engineers thought, very logical. (laughs) I can tell you logic was like a foreign language, an exotic foreign language in the household I grew up in. And so everything was... Every decision was reached by intuition and and those kinds of things. So all of a sudden, I literally felt my brain opening up, and I consciously felt that I was I was beginning to bloom. But I'll tell you, even when I was at Stanford and struggling to even concentrate on minimally difficult homework in those Mickey Mouse classes that I described, I would head off to the library and I would read back issues of magazines. My favorite magazine at the time was Sports Illustrated, and I read every back issue of Sports Illustrated. I was learning, even though I, I, I thought I was goofing off. And as a security guard, most of my postings were not in trucking firms. They were, I was the guy who would come in at five o'clock and replace the receptionist and, and mainly sit there, occasionally make a round until I was relieved by another security guard at midnight. And I started reading leftover copies of the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. I started reading novels that I liked, both thriller novels and serious novels. I discovered Saul Bellow, a literary novelist who won the Nobel Prize in Literature. I read his works. And so even when I was reading Sports Illustrated, and then when I was reading in the lobby of office buildings as a security guard, I was learning things, and I was learning things that I wanted to learn about. What made for great writing? What made for great magazines? And all of that I was able to use both as a technical writer and editor at the Electric Power Research Institute, and then more spectacularly, when a friend of 
Klein and I started Silicon Valley's first business magazine, Upside, and I modeled it after Sports Illustrated because I wanted to bring, I wanted to break out of the business magazine mold and bring a high energy and a wit and a punch you in the face attitude to a business magazine because all the all the magazines at the time that covered things like venture capital and and technology were 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 suck up magazines. They would approach their subjects from below and be thrilled if if those on high gave them a 15 minute interview. And I discovered by punching people in the face our very first issue took Kleiner Perkins, the reigning venture capital firm. Uh, we took them on because one of their funds was underwater. We had a great reporter who dug it out, dug out the dug out the returns that were being reported to limited partners. And um, Kleiner Perkins was so incensed they threatened to sue us, but our venture capitalist backers stood by us, and uh, and that got attention. And pretty soon, people like Bill Gates were giving me two and three and four hours of interviews. Uh, because they took us seriously. That got the attention of Forbes. Steve Forbes hired me. And so within 10 years, I went from being a security guard whose colleague was a dog to reporting directly to Steve Forbes. So I would say, going back to your original question, what about learning? Somehow during those years when I was not blooming at all, in fact, I was shamefully uh, underaccomplished. I was learning a lot, both by reading back issues of Sports Illustrated and later reading the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and novels. And so I think that I'm the kind of person that, that learns when I'm pursuing things that I really love to do. And I couldn't articulate that at the time because I didn't know it would pay any dividends. So when you think about it, the education system today, Serini, I think what we've done is we've created this conveyor belt that starts very early. It starts in cities like New York at preschool. My goodness, if affluent parents aren't sending their three or four-year-old to a school that costs $45,000 a year, they feel like they're not doing the best for their kid and they're depriving their kid of a chance to get into Princeton or Harvard 15 years later. But the kids are feeling pushed today and and pushing will produce some results. Some people respond to being pushed. Uh, a lot of kids, though, rebel in countless ways. They become scatterbrained. They, they're, they're, they're disinterested. There are rising rates of anxiety and depression among kids today, even suicides in Palo Alto, which is God's country. Sorry to any Berkeley grad there, but, but mm. Palo Alto is quite wonderful. The Atlantic Monthly did a cover story in August 2015 called the Silicon Valley Suicides. There were six in Palo Alto in one school year, and there were more than uh, 40 hospitalizations and treatments for kids who were talking seriously about suicide. And the writer discovered these weren't crazily impulsive kids or self-destructive kids or drug-addicted kids. They were the kids who were getting B-pluses and 700s on their math SAT rather than straight A's in advanced placement courses and 800s on their math SAT. Now imagine that. You feel so crummy about yourself because you're only a B-plus student um, that, that you kill yourself. And so that should make everybody be alarmed. 
And that's really what got me off my dime and told me that I had to write a book about this and spend four years doing the research to do it. Suddenly, now I had a reason to share my own kind of goofy, awkward path from high school to being a security guard to finally blossoming in my late 20s. Yeah. So, I mean, how much of the the college admission scandal do you think is a byproduct of a system like this? Because I think the thing that struck me as so bizarre about this whole situation was that the people who participated in this thing seemed like, well, why didn't you just buy a damn library for the school? You know, it just that struck me as one of the strangest things that like people with this much wealth would stoop to these lows to get their kids into these schools. Yeah, I think it's kind of the perverse but inevitable conclusion of this pressure that parents are feeling today that if uh, if they don't, if their kids aren't superstars when they're young and they aren't getting into the most elite schools, well, then I guess it's embarrassing when you're talking about your kids at a cocktail party or something like that. Even if you're a well-intended parent, the pressure to have your kids stack up against somebody else's kids is hard to resist. Now, why did they spend $500,000 or a million dollars in a bribe as opposed to buying a wing or a library or something like that because they tried to do it on the cheap. The library might have cost $20 million or donating a wing to the university might have cost $100 million. The old-fashioned way turns out to be pretty expensive, so they they tried to do it on the cheap. Um, you know, I think they got it. it. It's like the frog in the boiling pot of water. If you start out in lukewarm water and turn the temperature up, pretty soon it's boiling and you don't know. And I think they got into this. I don't think these are parents who ever thought themselves as felons, but but they ended up committing a felony. Yeah. So <clears throat> one thing that you you said here uh, in the book was that our culture's early obsession with early achie- our culture's obsession with early achievement has become detrimental to the majority of the population, to the multitudes of us who develop in different ways at different places. It pushes the message that if you haven't become famous, reinvented an industry, or banked seven figures while you're still young enough to get carded, you've somehow made a wrong turn in life. And you know, I think that that stood out to me as somebody who had been fired from every job I'd had, you know, by the time I was thirty. Uh, and congratulations! You wouldn't be the great work you're doing today if that hadn't happened. Yeah, no, I, I wouldn't be where I am if that hadn't happened. And you know, as I was telling you earlier, you know, uh, in contrast to a conversation I had with Scott Galloway, who actually said, you know what, this is this is important. It does have a big big impact on where you end up in the future. But I wonder. You know, how do we begin to change this whole idea of if you haven't done this? Because I, I think that even you know when you get out of college, if you're in the Valley, if you're in the world today and you consume media, I think you're constantly made to feel as if you are behind in some way. Uh, because you, you, know, you read a website like Medium, literally every day, it seems like somebody is putting in a series of life hacks and you're like, holy shit, this person is way more productive than I am. Uh, this person has done way more than I have. And I, I think there's just kind of an inevitable sort of comparison. So I guess, where do we, how do we begin to change this and undo this, this you know, cultural obsession with early achievement? Well, I'm trying to do my part with this book. This is certainly a different kind of book for me, and it's certainly a book that came from a different set of motivations because I've spent my career at Forbes. Forbes is New York-based. I've lived in Silicon Valley my adult life. I thank Steve Forbes every day that he left me in Silicon Valley. But I, 
I've spent my career writing about the intersection of business, finance, and technology, and it's a fascinating world to be in, particularly with technology accelerating the way it is with cloud computing, 4G going to 5G, uh, new artificial intelligence algorithms leading to machine learning, et cetera, et cetera. It's fascinating stuff, and it's going to have a huge impact on the way businesses need to rearrange how they see the future and how they operate. So writing about late bloomers is a, is a completely different book for me. And, uh, and I felt a, a motivation to do it because of all this hurt that is out there. Parents hurting, parents going into debt, kids hurting, kids going into debt. Now, I would like people to look at it the following way. We've created this conveyor belt to early success that overvalues rapid algorithmic skills and focus. Because if you're going to sit down and take a standardized test, you're the kid with rapid algorithmic skills, a quick logic brain, not necessarily a deep logic brain, but a quick logic brain, because the clock is ticking when you take these tests. And you have the kind of determination and focus to put your butt to the chair for hours at a time to do the studies you need to do to get 4.3s in advanced placement courses. That's all great. But this conveyor belt, what it misses is just all the skills and passions of the majority of kids who don't thrive under that. I like to say it this way. Imagine you're the most gifted marathon runner in the world that you could be. You have everything that it takes to be a great long distance runner, a marathon runner. And then you're put onto a conveyor belt and all the conveyor belt cares about is whether you're a good shot putter. Well, shot putters, world-class shot putters are 300 pounds. You know, they have explosive muscles, fast twitch muscles. The marathon runner is usually, they're, they're always skinny. They have slow twitch muscles. They have other skills. So if you were the marathon runner, but you were being tested and fitted for being a shot putter, you would fall into the bottom twenty-fifth, you know, bottom twenty-five percent, maybe the bottom ten percent. You would come out of that system if that's all you knew, and that's all you were tested for, and that's all your parents and educators and colleges cared about. You would come out of that thinking you were a big loser. You think about all these skills that are never discovered. My goodness, you know, we have. Uh, in public schools in the United States, only one out of 20 offer a skilled trades track. In fact, my, my old college roommate, the clinical psychologist, described a very common kind of a meeting. He, he does family practice, and oftentimes it's a troubled teen that brings the family to seek practice, seek therapy with my old friend, Jeff. And so Jeff will talk to the troubled teen. It's usually a boy, and he gets to know the boy. And the boy will get around to talking about something that he's really interested in. For example, one of them was really interested in tuning cars. I mean, today, tuning cars isn't just mechanical. It isn't just turning a wrench. It's also tweaking the software to try to extract more horsepower out of the engine. And he was just passionate about that. But, all the, but he was afraid to tell his parents because his parents were educated upper middle class folks living in Pasadena, and they were determined that this kid go to USC because the dad went to USC, and he never even told his parents about that. 
So Jeff has a conversation with the parents. You know what I've discovered? He said, your, your, your boy is really interested in, in tuning cars. Now, I'm only offering this as a suggestion, he said. Maybe he ought to get a summer job at a Lexus service center rather than going to yet another camp to try to enhance his prospects of getting into USC. Maybe he ought to go to trade school. By the way, going to trade school and becoming a mechanic pays well. There's a rapid return on investment. Schools don't take that long, don't cost that much. And he can always go to college later. Maybe he's, maybe he's the kind of kid that um, will want to go to college at age 25 or 26. Or maybe he'll want to go to college to pick up business schools because he'll decide that he wants to get into maintaining cars as a living, but he wants to, but he wants to have a business around it and hire other people. It could be many, many things. And rather than listening to my friend Jeff, these parents, the dad in particular, just was not open to this idea at all. In fact, as Jeff said, this dad leaned forward in his chair, slapped the table, looked at Jeff and said, my kid is going to USC. I went to USC. That's what we do in this family. Now, how is that servicing this kid? Do you think this kid is going to thrive at USC, even if he gets in? Do you think the parents probably weren't of the means to be able to bribe some coach in some obscure country club sport to get the kid in? But they, I'm sure they would have, you know, they were looking for every possible edge that they could give to their kid, and the kid wasn't interested in it at all. And so how is that servicing the kid? You know, the kid was rebelling. He was depressed. He found his own set of interests and his own set of friends. The parents didn't like the friends because they didn't look, they didn't look preppy like the kind of kids that were bound for USC. And this is, this is a disaster. It's a disaster. I, I really hope that kid has the courage to step out and repot himself into some environment where, uh, where he's surrounded by people who love him as he is. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting to talk about about parents in particular, because I remember this line in the book and um, I wanted to ask you about this, uh, especially because, you know, you grew up in an Indian American family. This is very deeply embedded and I'll I'll get more specific after I I read this passage. You said our families are our first teachers of cultural norms. Our parents play a key role in teaching us about the broader world and how to relate to it. They keep they help us form our identities, both as individuals and as group members. They shape our expectations about the world and show us how to act. They influence our priorities and our decisions about college, career, friends, and spouse. Some families encourage a wide range of possible futures. Others don't. Now, it's funny. When I, when I heard that, I thought it, there, I, I, it took me back to this conversation that my dad was having with you know a, an old uncle that was visiting and he had a son that was, I think, in high school. And my dad says, so what does he want to do? Does he want to become a doctor, engineer? Or does he want to study computers or become a lawyer? I'm like, wait a minute. That's it? Like those are the, You've taken this kid's life and limited it to four possibilities before he's even gotten out of high school. And that really struck me as one of those things that is deeply embedded into culture, um, particularly Indian culture. And I, you know, I sympathize with my parents' narrative because they grew up in a situation where it was either stability or poverty. There was nothing in between. Like there was no late blooming for people like them. And so I wonder, you know, when you you know, when you're talking to parents who are immersed in these kinds of cultures and kids who are immersed in these kinds of cultures, what is your advice to them or what is your message to them? Because I can tell you, you know, I think it was very implicit that my parents suggested that, you know, if you really do want to make us happy, become a doctor. And my sister did. I didn't. Uh, And so I've always thought about that. And I figured who better to ask about this than you? Well, I feel I'm on shaky ground here when I'm talking about other people's cultural backgrounds. And I completely sympathize with your parents uh, and also with people from East Asia, for whom poverty is pretty close in the rearview mirror. Either they grew up in poverty or they can remember grandparents that grew up in poverty in the home country. 
and the choices were pretty binary, as you describe. Once you get to the United States or any affluent country, though, and there are so many, so many other options around, you know, then then you have to look at it differently. I was at the University of China in Hong Kong, if I've got the name right, and I should have that name right, but I'm I'm not. Uh, I'm, it's not in front of you right now. But anyway, it was in um, in Hong Kong. And I was on a panel, and a bunch of students were there. And the panel had some HR people, and it had some CEOs. And I was the only one from America, and I was the only one who was Caucasian. So I, I, I felt that I, I can't be too aggressive on this panel. I'm going to listen for a while and see what I can offer that uh, that would that would be useful and be be accepted. Well, anyway, the panel went on. The people in the audience were students. And then I'll never forget one woman, one young lady in the audience raised her hand and she said, nobody's talking about our experience here. And then she proceeded to describe how these enormous pressures that these kids felt from their parents in Hong Kong was very similar to what what you see in Silicon Valley and, and the coastal cities in the United States, the same thing. And then one young man, now that the dam had broken, one one young man described how his parents were insistent that he become a medical doctor, and he wanted to go into business. But from his parents' perspective, business was running some grinding family company that, that wouldn't scale, that meant that you were working all the time. The, the, the kind of barely above poverty existence that they could relate to, and they didn't they just had no experience, these parents did, with, with technology companies, rapid scale companies, global companies, um, and that's what the kid was talking about. And so there's a, a real gulf between the perceptions of the parents and business. Uh, moreover, um, if you grew up in mainland China, um, the country's acceptance of business has ebbed and flowed over the past, uh, past century and many centuries. And even though Post Mao, uh, is, there's been a business boom. There's been a little. Some of the people who've been around a long time can sense that there's been some backward movement there, and maybe entrepreneurs don't have quite the free hand that they used to. And maybe the state-owned enterprises have the ear of the ruling classes and could stomp out an entrepreneurial company with no reason other than the fact they could do it. Therefore. What is stable is a medical degree. You'll always be in need. You'll always be respected. You'll always be compensated decently. So I think in that case, uh, perhaps as it was in the case of your parents, just simply different different perceptions. Yeah, yeah no doubt. So one other thing you said, you know, is you said the simple fact is it's impossible to apply a single metric or one-dimensional scale to something as intricate and multifaceted as human development. And yet we as a society measure rank and sort ourselves more than ever before. You say that societies in a crisis are obsession with test scores, perfect grades, and measurable early achievement developed from a good idea that has been way overshot. Instead of a meritocracy that rewards a variety of human talents, we've created a narrowing IQ slash SAT oligarchy. And I think that, you know, that struck me because, you know, despite getting into Berkeley from there on out, it was pretty much downhill with bad grades and, you know, being dismissed from every job that I was at. And so 
I wonder <clears throat> how do we find different ways to to measure um, what people are capable of when this is the way we've done it for so long? Uh, you know, is there a way? Is there a different way to do this that doesn't put us into this what you call you know IQ SAT oligarchy? I think if you look at best practices around the world, you see some intriguing things that ought to be tried, if not nationally in the United States, at least on an experimental level at, the, at, at state government or municipal government. For example, Finland. Finland doesn't expose kids to reading, writing, and arithmetic until they're seven years old. They actively discourage it, and they don't teach it in the public schools because on this belief that Young kids have these amazing plastic minds, and that ages below seven are ages when these kids should explore. They should be kids. They should play. A lot more. Uh, that Finland doesn't have anything like the obesity problems and some of the the lack of physical fitness problems that we have at the United States, even in, with young kids today. So that's that's a great example. By the way. Um, Finns do very well. Uh, Finns graduate at the near the top of the heap in terms of any way that we can, you know, any way that we can assess that that Finn high school grads are do well. Finland popped up in some survey about a month ago as the happiest people in the world. If you can be happy in Finland with that kind of weather, with with winter days where there's practically no sunlight at all, I don't think I would be happy in Finland. So for Finland to achieve that is some accomplishment. I think we have, uh, I talked about the revival of skilled trades in the United States because so many people, maybe more boys than, than girls, would benefit by, by um, getting to actually pound nails into wood or play around with welding or electrician's work or stuff like that. Again, these jobs pay well. They are going begging in the United States right now. Companies can't fill them enough. Therefore, the pay scale has gone up for skilled trades. And, and, and you can always go to college later, or you can build a business around your skilled trades. Another one I really believe is powerful is gap years, taking two years off between high school and college should you decide to go to college, or two years between the sophomore and junior year. About the only way you can blow a gap year is to have mommy and daddy write checks to subsidize whatever the heck you're going to do. And then the kid naturally turns those two years into an extended party. That doesn't do much good. But kids going on missions, they can be re religious missions. They can be other kinds of missions to, to build houses in Central America or, or in inner cities, place, you know, places like that where there's a need for that. Um, going out and doing an entrepreneurial fling uh, in the book, I wrote about a kid who who decided he wasn't going to college right away, and and he ended up working for a surf magazine, an online magazine, and it paid nothing, and he lived in his car, and he decided then to go to Puerto Rico, and he was a dishwasher, did all of these kinds of things. And then when he came back, he was ready for school. He could now see the value of an education. It was He owned it. He didn't feel like he owned it before. No. So gap years are really important. I even think, you know, my libertarian friends cringe at this idea, but we should open up a maybe a more robust discussion around whether two-year mandatory military service might do some good. And if people don't like the military, 
then create a civilian service equivalent for them. Mm-hmm. Because the countries that have them include Israel, Singapore, Switzerland, Sweden. They have better outcomes for their young adults, adults in their 20s, yeah. than we do. Less crime, less addiction, and so on. Now, may not be the per- those countries may not be the perfect example because they're their uh their culture is more um they're, they're not countries of 330 million with all the cultures the united states embodies so maybe not quite uh the the perfect uh comparison but it's worth talking about it's worth it's worth seeing if that might lead to better outcomes a lot of people discover themselves but they're getting they're getting uh, paid while they're discovering themselves and, and they're growing up into their, you know, true adult function. So I think there are a lot of examples around the world to answer your original question that mm-hmm. suggest that this supercharged conveyor belt early achievement is, while it may work for some, it's not working for the many more. Yeah. So I think the thing that really I, I appreciated what I what I started really getting happy about the message was when we started I started reading about the benefits of being a late bloomer. You know, you see, yeah, our brains are constantly forming neural networks and pattern recognition capabilities that we didn't have in our youth when we had blazing synaptic power. As we get older, we develop new skills and refine others, including social awareness, emotional regulation, empathy, humor, listening, risk reward calibration, and adaptive intelligence, all these skills enhance our potential to bloom and rebloom. And then you go into the various late bloomer strengths. And I was wondering if you could give us an overview of what those are. Well, late bloomer strengths include things like curiosity. The late bloomer tends to have more curiosity than the early bloomer. What happens to the early bloomer can best be understood from a conversation I had with Carol Dweck. Carol Dweck, of course, is the Stanford psychologist, wrote a best-selling book called Mindset. Satya Nadella at Microsoft has everyone at Microsoft read Mindset. Once people discovered that this great CEO, Satya Nadella, was making people read Mindset, Mindset was read by everybody, and it became a, a bestseller. Well, Carol teaches freshman psychology at Stanford, she said that the uh, that the freshmen she sees today, too many of them are, in her words, exhausted and brittle. They don't want to mar their perfect records. In other words, by Carol Dweck's description, that these are kids who fall into a fixed mindset. They've been so conditioned to be rote learners and to perform to other people's expectations. They essentially have been asked to trade their curiosity for focus. And then they find their curiosity is depleted. So late bloomers tend to have more curiosity. They tend to have more resilience. They have better, a late blooming skill is equanimity. That's the ability to stay calm under pressure. For example, about a year ago, on a Southwest Airlines flight to Philadelphia at 31,000 feet in cruise, one of the engines just literally exploded and metal was flying everywhere. Shrapnel went through the window and and mortally injured one of the passengers. There was bleeding everywhere in the cabin. People were screaming. People were throwing up. And when you listen to the air traffic control recording of what the pilot was saying, the pilot was just calm as could be. And the pilot took the plane down to 10,000 feet as rapidly as she could and uh, so that uh, uh, people could breathe, those that were that had failed to put on their oxygen mask. 
and then she landed the plane. Now, her name was Tammy Jo Schultz. Now, Tammy Jo Schultz was 56 years old when that happened. Captain Sullenberg was, Sullenberger was um, 58 when he landed the disabled U.S. airplane in the Hudson River. You think about that, a 56-year-old and a 58-year-old responding the way they did to a completely unexpected set of circumstances, and they just they, they were absolutely masterful in that situation. So the ability to stay calm under pressure, deep pattern recognition or creative insight. One of the people I talked to uh, in the book is a maverick neuroscientist at NYU named Elkanen Goldberg. He was born in the Soviet Union. He came to the United States. He just, I just love this guy. And he started noticing in his own life, he's 72 years old, he started noticing in his 60s that he was able to arrive at complex decisions and, and get uh, an answer to complex questions in an intuitive fashion. And he wondered, well, you know, is it as good as good an answer, as solid an answer as I would have gotten if I had really worked it in a logical manner, gone down the logic tree and all the other things I've been trained to do as an academician. And he would back test his intuitions and see that they, his intuitions were just as good as the logical path and took a lot less time. He was really intrigued by that, the sense that, that his brain was continuing to develop in this deep, deeper way. And he developed this theory that I love. And uh, it's a little bit controversial. Um, not everybody in neuroscience or psychology subscribes to it. But I love the idea. And I think he's on to something very important. And that is that you know, our prefrontal cortex only becomes fully developed until our mid-20s. And that, that's a bell curve. So for some people, it can be later than that. And then and only then do you get this flowering of neural networks between the two hemispheres of the brain, the intuitive um, side and the, and the logical side. And that keeps growing and growing and growing. And Dr. Goldberg's name for this set of networks is the salience network. And what he's proposing is that the communications between the two sides of the brain, as they keep getting better and better, that, that this kind of debate is happening, that the intuitive side of the brain, which is better able to recognize something novel, is able to communicate that novelty to the other side of the brain where memories are stored. And you get this novel perception stacked up against memories and that out pops something that's really useful you're able to see whether this novel perception is useful or not and that that is really that is really cool i wrote about the football coach bill walsh um who of course is is was legendary as the as the coach of the 49ers won three super bowls left the franchise in position to immediately win two more he wasn't a head coach of any significance until he was 46, and he didn't become the 49ers coach until he was 48. And he describes this situation earlier in his career when he's 36. So he's not he's not a young man. He's a middle you know early middle aged man where he got the idea for his West Coast offense passing game. Walsh was had so unbloomed <laughs> that he was coaching at the time a semi professional team called the San Jose Apaches. And they played at San Jose, their games at San Jose City College against other semi-professional teams. And they practiced on a lumpy high school football field. 
And one day at the end of practice, he wanders by the gym, he hears whistles and shouts, and he goes in and he sees a high school basketball team practicing inbounding the ball against the full court press where, uh, you know, the, the team on defense tries to harass the team trying to inbound the ball. But a team that's prepared for that can get the ball past midcourt 90% of the time. And Walsh said, well, how are they able to do that? And it was through a series of picks and rolls and screens and things like that. And all of a sudden, he gets this idea from out of nowhere. I wonder what that would look like in football, inbounding the ball against a full-court press. And that was the genesis of what became the West Coast offense. And when he had the opportunity as 49ers coach to have a say in the NFL draft, he had his eyes on Joe Montana of Notre Dame. Now, the rap on Joe Montana from classic NFL scouts and general managers was that Montana was too skinny and he didn't have this real rifle arm that, that NFL coaches thought they, thought they needed. He couldn't pass the ball downfield to great lengths and great velocity. But Montana had been an all-star or an all-state high school basketball player, so good, in fact, he was offered a full-ride basketball scholarship at North Carolina State. But he went to Notre Dame to play football instead. And what Walsh saw was, that's exactly what I want. I want a quarterback who's more like a basketball point guard who can see everybody on the field at once. Because if I'm going to have this short passing game, they can't just fixate on one receiver far downfield. They have to work through the, the sequencing of, of open receivers. And, and so he trusted his instincts, and he took Montana and the rest the rest is history. And it was a great example of what Elkan and Goldberg called this deep insight you get when you take a novel perception, you know, from out of left field, seeing something in a high school basketball practice, and then you, you've got these stored memories in your brain on the other side. And all of a sudden, was this useful, this thing I just saw? And in Walsh's case, his intuition was yes. Well, the intuition popped up as a result of this communication that was going on between the left and right hemispheres of the brain, just as Elkanah Goldberg would have predicted. Well, it's funny when I, when I hear you describe that, you know, uh, throughout my life, music has been a steady presence. I was a high school band, uh, always had a love for movies. And I remember the moment we developed the visual aesthetic for unmistakable creative. Suddenly I started to hear things in conversations where I thought, oh my God, I'm like, we should just strip out this person's conversation, you know, isolate it to itself and animate it and set it to music. And lo and behold, we ended up doing a six episode animated series uh, with Soul Pancake. And it's funny because a lot of our listeners don't even know that, which you can go see it on mysticalcreative.com slash animation. But it was like all these dots from different parts of my past connected. And now, you know, we're able to we've already started production on the next round um, and we're going to be basically building an entire YouTube channel. But I realized, like, wait a minute, this is literally, you know, years and years and years of little things that I've accumulated that I don't think I would have seen at any other point in my life. Yeah, what a great example. And by the way, uh, as I told you before we started recording, you have the best website I think I've ever seen. And the way you've created these conversations into, uh, you, you, they look like record albums. They are absolutely fantastic. And now to hear you explain how you brought, brought together all of these different experiences that you've had in your life, and you've synthesized it. You know, so much of innovation today's Srini is synthesis, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, you think about uh, great um, musical bands, 
You think about great software creations. Most of them aren't completely original. It's so hard to be completely original in a world with more than 7 billion people and four or 5 billion of them connected on the internet and all of that, all of that talent out there. And so synthesis is really important. And our ability to synthesize gets better as we get older. Our ability is this great, other great study that I cited in the book and refer to throughout was this 2015 study on the brain done by Laura Germain, a postdoc at Harvard, Joshua Hartzorn, a postdoc at MIT. They were both doing their postdoc work at Massachusetts General Hospital. And they asked a simple question, at what age do our cognitive abilities peak? And the answer is complex, intriguing, and really, really hopeful. Because the answer is, what cognitive abilities are you talking about? And sure enough, when you're talking about rapid cognitive processing speed and working memory, they peak early in our teens and early 20s. Those are the skills that allow you to sit down and take an SAT test in three hours. Those are the skills that allow you to do, you know, under under pressure, a lot of software programming, maybe not the best software programming, but but that'll depend on the skill of the person. But you can do a lot of it and you can do it rapidly. You can do you can do it in a team uh, in what Reed Hoffman, the founder of LinkedIn, calls blitz scaling. And so software programming and blitz scaling are talents of the young. It's really interesting, you know, when you, uh, when you look at, at Silicon Valley with a deeper eye, because on the surface, you see all of these, these prodigal blitz scalers like Mark Zuckerberg, Sergey Brin, and Larry Page at, at Google, Travis Kalanick, late of Uber. You know, they're really good at that kind of stuff. But then you look at enterprise software and you see different skills are rewarded. Diane Green co-founding VMware when she was 43, leading it till she was 53, and leading Google Cloud up until January this year at age 64. Or you look at Tom Siebel, Siebel Systems at 41, C3 at 57. Today is Tom is 66, and he's at the forefront of the industrial application of IoT and AI. You look at Dave Duffield, PeopleSoft at 46, Workday at 64. You look at Fred Luddy, who started ServiceNow two weeks before his 50th birthday. ServiceNow is a market cap today of $50 billion, not that far away from Uber after its disappointing IPO last week. So when you get into enterprise technology, there's not so much blitz scaling, but it is about solving deep, deep problems in the industrial world. A different set of attributes merge. Mm. So there's one other thing that you said here in the book that really kind of struck me, and you, I think it was in reference to sort of the media that we're supposed to. You said, while these idealized selves are often far from reality, they fill up our ever-narrowing news feeds and add to the barrage of media-driven norms and attitude and beliefs that we consume in ever greater quantities with greater regularity. And then you also said that our value as a person can be thrown into question when we follow a slower or more un- or unconventional path. Today's media wildly over-celebrate youthful success it's hard to overestimate the influence this exerts on our children, our peers, and ourselves. 
And, uh, you know, Timmy, I think part of the reason that that struck me so much was because I know you worked at Forbes and I can tell you, uh, you know, I remember a few years ago, I made this list of 100 insanely interesting people you should know. And the only reason I made that list was it because it pissed me off every time I saw the Forbes list of 30 under 30 and 40 under 40. I was like, well, you know what the hell with those people? I'm going to make my own list. And so, you know, having worked at Forbes, um, you know, I, I wonder, you know, what your viewpoint on these things is like, should we get rid of these lists? Like, do you think they add to the, to the problem? Well, I think collectively they shape popular culture. There, there is no doubt about that. In the case of Forbes, I applaud Randall Lane, the editor who came up with the idea and now has built a franchise around more than just an annual cover issue that we have conferences of, around the world, our U30 series in Israel, London, Paris, this year in, in the U.S. it's going to be in Detroit. These are little three-day kind of uh, modeled after South by Southwest. And Randall solved a problem that we had at Forbes, and that was we uh, among our readers, we had an aging demographic that advertisers weren't as interested in. And, uh, and the perception of Forbes readers is that we were we were old and our, our advertising or you know, the things that we buy had hardened our decisions around cars, um, you know, who we were having managing our financial portfolios, et cetera, et cetera. We, we had made our decisions on these major issues and therefore advertisers would be reaching people that had already made their decisions. So I don't blame them at all for that. What I, what I am saying is that there's the other side of the coin. And that we need, rather than suppress what Randall's doing, we need to elevate the story of late bloomers and why this conveyor belt to early success is is damaging to, to people who are differently gifted, to the equivalent of the marathon runner who's being tested and graded as a shot putter. So, you know, to, to my friend Randall, I say, have at it. You know, the obligation is now on our side, on my side, to tell the other side of the story. Hmm. Wow. Um, well, I think that was a really fitting place to wrap up our conversation. I have one other question for you, which is how we finish sure. our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes something or somebody or something unmistakable? Well, let me go back to this idea that I have about blooming and late blooming. I think we put ourselves in the best position to bloom when through a journey of discovery and a journey of discovery that will will beat us up it will humiliate us it will create situations as it did for you where despite getting into berkeley great world class institution you felt your heart wasn't in it you were fired from jobs no doubt because you felt your heart wasn't in it because it certainly has nothing to do with your capability or i look at myself similarly and I think that what happened to you, what happened to me, what's happened to countless late bloomers, is that on our journey to discovery, we find ourselves at a magic intersection. And that magic intersection is where our native gifts, our deepest passions, and our abiding sense of purpose come together. And when we're there, Srini, I really believe what happens is that we discover something that we can go all in on. And rather than feeling pushed by our parents or by educators or employers, we feel pulled. We p feel pulled toward our own destiny. If you want to get religious or metaphysical about it, 
you can say that we're being pulled toward our supreme destiny, the destiny that we were always meant to fulfill by the force that created us. And when you're on, when you feel pulled, the most amazing thing happens. For instance, I'm an introvert. Uh, If you're an introvert, the idea of selling somebody something is very difficult. I mean, you just reflexively back away from it. I remember in high school asked to raise money for this or little fun drive or that. I was always the worst performer. The idea of cold calling somebody and and asking for money, just I just couldn't do it. But when you're an entrepreneur or you want to do something unmistakable, sooner or later, and it'll be sooner, you're going to have to sell somebody on something. There's just no doubt about that. Well, how does the person who doesn't think they have sales skills at all, or, or even as an introvert, how the heck are they going to do that? But when you're feeling pulled, you see, you get these powers that you didn't imagine that you had. You get the powers of endurance. You get the powers of courage. You get the powers of salesmanship. A most amazing thing because you're not selling somebody else's product to make a quota. You're selling your mission. You're on a you're on you're a missionary at this point. Completely different. That's why I'm such an advocate of getting yourself into that position where you really feel that you're being pulled. You're being led towards something, and nobody is going to stop you. You couldn't even stop you, and you know if you get out of your get out of your way, you can't even stop you. So when you do, when that happens, you will become unmistakable, no doubt. Amazing. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and sharing your story and your insights with our listeners. This has been mind blowing, thought provoking, everything I thought it would be, and so much more. Srini, you made my day hearing about your story and all that you've done and your fantastic creations. So I feel inspired for the day. Thank you for having me. Yeah, awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. 
We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.